for June 27th, holy crap, holy crap, holy crap. Recorded live in Washington, D.C., again, it's This Week in Time Travel. So Chip said it, but I need to repeat it a few times. Holy crap, guys. That was a really intense episode of Doctor Who. Like, I, I don't even know which part made me the most tense throughout it, but everything with that finale just like ramped up my blood pressure really high. What did you guys feel coming out of that? That was one of the most intense episodes of Doctor Who I have ever experienced. Hi, Rachel. Rachel's here. So the three of us are here in D.C. again. Yes. So exciting. My old stomping grounds. It's good to actually see everybody face to face as we're recording this. This is a new experience for the three of us. Uh, But it was really fun last night to all get together uh, and watch this episode and see everyone react to it in real time. And hear everyone's reactions as well. There was no small amount of flailing. We were here with uh, a lot of our friends, including the Head Over Feels crew, uh, just for a spontaneous, more or less, get together. And we took some time, thanks to you, Alyssa, in your apartment complex's luxurious screening room. Yes, uh, this is basically the upside of moving into my new building, is that I have basically a theater room to bring everyone in. So Doctor Who viewings at my place for eternity, guys. Come join me. Woohoo. Uh, yeah, I think I need to go back and rewatch the episode, though, just because a large part of the dialogue in the last 10 minutes was uh, cut off by a lot of squeeing and flailing and swearing as the uh, big reveals started coming out yeah and i think one of the keys to the episode was rachel talley's direction because she ratcheted up the tension throughout the course of the episode masterfully yeah i want to focus a little bit on her direction because she has her background and her roots in horror movies and you can really feel that in this episode there's so much of bringing out the horror of the cybermen and especially the mondasian cybermen are kind of silly, you know, a little bit, you know, it's socks over their heads and hands coming out that you can see, you know, flesh, not gloves in the original version. She really brings out the horror, though, of having Cybermen that are that close to being human. Absolutely. And I think that the way that the story went, it really made those elements of the Mondasian Cybermen work in their favor. And in unfortunately showing it, I'm air quoting right now, the genesis. (laughs) There's a lot of feelings about that. Of the Cybermen, yes. But it made those costume elements work in its favor, I think, in telling that origin story. Yeah. It was a very, very fan-winky episode of Doctor Who. Yes. Um, especially uh, with regard to classic series fandom. Um, there was so much in there that was designed purely for either an audience of 
old school Doctor Who fans who remember what the master was like back in the Delgado days. Or an audience of one, Mr. Stephen Moffat. Oh, uh, audience of two, Mr. Stephen Moffat and Mr. Peter Capaldi. Yes. Um, you know, and it's hard for me to get a read on the episode outside of that. You know, I, I know so much about what they're taking shots at and making fun of and loving with, you know, coming in. I, I, I can't imagine what this episode was like for somebody coming in cold. Yeah, I'm. I don't know. I'm so in into sort of the the fan wink now um, that I I don't remember what it would be like to come into that completely cold. You know, I remember the first time learning about the unit dating controversy, and I watched some of the new Doctor Who episodes that referenced that. You know, you had the the Poison Sky two parter with the Suntarans, and they make jokes and references to that. And I remember being totally not even caring the first time I was watching it. I didn't re- realize that they were referencing something. I wasn't thrown by it. And then there's this very lengthy conversation in this episode about, is it Doctor Who? Is it the doctor? Check your screens. What's it say there? Like, uh, I I enjoyed it, I think, personally. But uh, Rachel, what did you think? Yeah, I so I'm aware of Mondasian Cybermen, and I, I'd seen still photos of them, but I, I have not seen that particular classic story before so I I had only a little bit of knowledge about them but I think um, Alyssa to your point some of the fan wanky stuff I mean it obviously came through in that conversation of the doctor versus doctor who and you know it's it's definitely one of those fanboy arguments that happens on the internet all the time Mm -hmm. and and to just kind of finally put that to rest I think a little bit. I think this episode kind of did that where you call it call him the doctor, call him Doctor Who. It doesn't matter. Just enjoy the show. There's a little bit more like poking a beehive. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anything was put to rest. Yeah, well, I think that I think I think the I think the hornets are coming I, out. Maybe I'm just being a little optimistic with that. <laughs> but that was what I took out of it. That is like really is that the most important thing about this show we need to talk about? Right. Probably not. Let's move on. So how did you feel? feel about seeing the Mondasian Cybermen, you know, I think it's one of those things a lot of people know of, but you're seeing this for the first time. Um, Were you uh, really brought in to the show by those Cybermen or did you let the episode feeling confused? Uh, Yes and no, because with something, understanding what the Cybermen are in general, where, you know, it's it's humans um, who are being upgraded and adding cybernetic elements to them and removing feelings and, and all of that. You know what they are. So you have to figure logically that there was some early experimentation along that front that maybe some worked and some didn't work and that it was a partial upgrade at first. It, it's just kind of a natural course of logic. So I think all of that part made sense. It was the, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more, it was the who and the why of the supposed original, what we're seeing now is supposedly the original Mondasian cyber person mm-hmm. that was very upsetting. How was that upsetting to you? That it was Bill? Yeah. Like, she she just deserves so much better than that. And... It was just horrifying mm-hmm. that sh- she, who is such a strong, interesting character, was being sacrificed 
you know, on behest of this other storyline going on with the doctor and the master. Yeah. Um, So let's dig into that a little bit, because when we were watching the episode, it obviously elicited a lot of horrified reactions, which it's it's meant to, you know, it's meant to be a really horrifying moment of this episode. Um, But I think a lot of people in our group reacted even more strongly um, and negatively, negatively to it, because it's not only seeing Bill become a Cyberman, it's now the second plot line in three seasons where a black companion has been turned into a Cyberman because it's part of an ongoing conflict between the doctor and uh, his white companion or friend, uh, like a ongoing argument between two, the doctor and another person and that their body is sort of thrown in and sacrificed to serve that plot line. Yeah. I, I come at it from two perspectives. Uh, first of all, I thought that it was really uncomfortable to see any character dealt with so graphically. This is a Doctor Who character on a, quote, family show, close quote, who is shot through the chest. We have the abstract shot of Bill reacting to being shot, Mm -hmm. and then it comes in a little closer. This is a fantastically directed episode by Rachel Talalay, just full stop, but... Whether it was scripted that way or whether it was a directorial choice by uh, Rachel, the shot looking through Bill's chest at the background. Yeah, death becomes her style. Yeah, and I I don't, I'm I'm blanking on the reference. I'm a bad pop culture person. (laughs) But that was too much for me in and of itself. I would have even had a problem with it if that had happened to Nardole. There are probably a lot of fans out there who would just who would be perfectly happy to see Nardole with a hole blown through his chest. But for for any character, that was uncomfortable for me. It felt too much to me. Um, but then on top of that, it's Bill. It's a it's a black queer woman who is shot, and the violence is just sort of graphically there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it is worse when you have someone from a marginalized community, one or more marginalized communities, treated that way, and it's not her story. It's something that happens to her, at least at that point, to, to heighten, the, uh, to, to, to heighten the, the tension, the stakes. You know, it, this episode is still largely the doctor's story. Well, it's it's the doctor and the master's story because, you know, when uh, John Sims' master meets Michelle Gomez's master, the thing that he mentions to her as he's trying to convince her, you know, hey, it's sort of a bad idea for you to be thinking about becoming good and standing with the doctor um, is he's not going to accept you after what you've done to his companion. Um, and he has brought Bill into the room to be cyberized and it's uh, a little bit up in the air in the moment as to whether he was following orders, but it's the master. I doubt he was following orders. I'd be willing to throw money on the fact that he encouraged 
having Bill converted, especially given the timing where he's seeing on the video screen that the doctor and Missy are coming down in the elevator and he knows this confrontation is happening. Like this seems to me to be a setup of um, John Sims master deliberately provoking the situation between the doctor and uh, Michelle Gomez's master by sacrificing uh, the companion to her fate. And uh, that to me bothers me more that it isn't just collateral in an ongoing battle um, that in an ongoing adventure that Bill puts herself in danger. This is the master attacking the companion in a really brutal way because he wants to cause conflict between the doctor and another version of himself. Yeah. And especially because so recently in the monk trilogy, you know, we had the doctor gaslight bill yeah. in service of a of another larger plot. Mm-hmm. And then now he is also willing to put her in and Nardal kinda up in danger to try and rehabilitate the master. Yeah. So that's two twice very recently that that's happened and it seems a little odd. Yeah. And there's a, there's a moment uh, when Missy makes her grand entrance as Doctor Who. When she, the second time around, she refers to the companions as the disposables. Yeah. There's some stuff happening here that I think, I think Moffat knows what he's doing. Um, he's not dumb. He is, uh, he is commenting on Doctor Who to a certain extent. I think there are a lot of fans out there upon watching this episode who are going to say, you know, who are going to hear our objections and say, well, that's just the point. But I think that they will. The question is, who's really disposable and who isn't? Um, Who gets to die in a way that preserves their dignity and who doesn't? Um, You know, we've had multiple companions, and I'm air quoting here, die um, when they are exiting the show. Amy and Rory die, but they get sent back in time to live out the rest of their lives happily with each other. Clara dies, but she's also revived and brought back to life and becomes essentially immortal and gets to continue to travel and have adventures. And Clara's death, credit to that season, it's done with a lot of dignity. She recognizes that she has made a mistake. She is going to accept her fate. She is going to die on her terms in the way that she finds acceptable. Bill's brought into a hospital, has her body brutally violated against her will, and is now living out as a creature that, as she says, is in constant pain. And she's afraid and disappointed and probably a bit angry at the doctor. She waited years down there for him. Like, who's truly disposable here? It seems that we're a little bit more willing to let Bill be brutalized. And, and you know, it all depends on what happens in the next episode um, and whether or not how, how she's brought back. It still is putting her through quite a lot of torture to service another storyline. Yeah, it's it's always hard to say, it. you know, what, the full breadth of the situation is when you're looking at part one of a two-parter or maybe it's really a three-parter with Christmas. We don't know yet how that's going to play out um, at the end of next week. But even so, 
you also do have to treat these episodes as standalone. Even if it's a two-parter and one story, you have to look at it on its own and say, is this okay? Right. Is this okay to be doing this? And I think that there, like, while there is so much good in this episode in terms of performances, in terms of, oh, and God, wouldn't have been, it have been great to not know that Johnson was coming back and be able to be surprised by that. That would have been the coup of the century for this show. Mm-hmm. I just, it's so maddening. Yep. But, you know, that being said... You know, is it okay even in part one of a part two episode to to be doing the kinds of things to Bill that they were doing? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the idea that we could have been surprised by the Johnson master it's still eternally frustrating to me. I watched the after show, the Doctor Who the fan shows after show with um, Brian Minchin. When they were doing the filming with the Cybermen on the streets of Cardiff, Sim was there in his razor get up, you know, completely masked in costume, everything. And nobody picked up on it was him there. After the announcement that John Sim was coming back, I went back through the set recon tag um, on Twitter to see if anybody had picked up anything that John Sim might have been there. And I was really impressed. Nobody had picked up on it. Nobody had thought John Sim was coming back. They must have gone to extraordinary lengths to protect that during filming. And then they blew it with putting him in the next time trailer after the first episode premieres. Like, come on, guys. That was entirely on your marketing team. Yeah, I I can't remember if... They thought that the Sun or one of the other tabloids was going to uh, leak that ahead of time. Um, I mean, maybe. I didn't hear any rumors about that. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But that's so disappointing. Yeah. It is. It it really is. Because it was so well pulled off. Because because even knowing that he was coming back in this two-parter, it still wasn't readily apparent that that was him. Absolutely. So when they did were, you both twig onto the fact that it was John Sim? At, at one point, I'd say about 15 minutes into the episode when he's uh, laughing, when, when, he, when he's laughing at Bill or laughing with Bill, and I was like, wait, that's a very familiar facial expression. I think that's John Sim. And I was thoroughly distracted because I don't think it's an accident. Um, there is a character on Babylon 5, which I do another podcast for, uh, played by Tim Choate called Zathras, an alien dude with a very weird syntax of speaking. And I think John Sim is actively pretending, he's actively riffing off of that character. The, the, it's, a, it's an almost one-to-one correspondence between the vocal tics and the hand gestures and everything else. Um, so I was really distracted by that. <laughs> I might have actually figured out that it was John John Sim earlier than that, but uh, the, but then I, I I did have an aha moment figuring it out. Our friend Eric Stadnick from Doctor Who, the writers' room, he'd had that spoiled for him in advance. Oh no! So we're in this we're in the screening room watching this episode on the big screen, and Sim and Mackie are sneaking down the hallway and sim's got a mask on top of a mask yes and when and, and which was it, very clever it was yes. very clever and very meta and 
Eric just howled from the back corner, and and then we and then that was before I figured out who it, who it was, and that was that was just delightful. And now I know why he laughed so hard. Yes, Rachel, when did you figure it out? It was later than that. It was before the that you know penultimate moment, but yeah. um, I think it was when they were just in their little I don't know apartment room or whatever um watching the screen and when bill was saying something about like oh he's trying to figure it out like you can tell what's happening and you could see him focusing more on missy and what missy was doing Mm -hmm. in in that moment and i was and and then i was i saw his eyes and i was just like oh no it can't be it can't be (laughs) yeah and then sure enough later it was but it yeah I, 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 I was sitting next to you, Alyssa, <laughs> and, uh, and all of a sudden, I can't remember what exactly the trigger moment was, but Alyssa sits bolt upright, leans forward, and I just patted her on the shoulder a little bit. She was like, it's an effing rubber mask. She didn't say effing. It's an effing rubber mask. (laughs) The moment that twigged it for me was when uh, John Sim uh, came into the room where Michelle Gomez was. uh, And I saw that happening and I went, oh, that's who it is. It's the master coming to see the other version of himself. I'd forgotten how far through the episode we were by that point. Like I was convinced we still had another 30, 45 minutes left to go. So I was like, no, we, you know, we just haven't seen him show up yet. You know, he's going to show up randomly somewhere through this. Like he's the one in charge doing all these machinations yes. or something in the yes. background. I yeah. thought that's what we were going to yeah. get. And then I saw that happen. I was like, oh, oh, they're really leaning hard into those classic series things. You know, it's Delgado with the rubber masks. Uh, someone in our screening said, it's time flight, but without the racism. And no. yes, <laughs> it, it was kind of like that reveal. But there were so many classic master things going on here. You know, he's got the proper goatee again. It's a very sort of master reveal of he's been in the background in this thing for a while. Like, Yeah, it's looking like we're not going to get that suit that we saw the promo shot in till next week. Yeah. Because he was obviously in that costume. Yeah. In the mask. But. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's John Sim playing a sort of the same master that he played in the RTD years. But given the, the, the makeup and the tropes that the classic master always had and it's i don't know if it's stephen moffat deciding that you know we need to be doing the master right um, what was wrong about the john sim master or about missy as the master i don't know but he's definitely he's definitely doing callbacks to uh delgado and ainley he's yeah. definitely like we've we've been playing with whether or not the master as Missy could change and could become good. Let's give you a as classic a master as we can possibly muster. Yeah, it's very much like that. Yeah, it, it's looking like Missy is going to have a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder, and we'll see who wins. You know? Okay, I'm the I'm the wrong person to be asking this question, but we have. 
not really in the in the classic series or really with John Sims master um, you know they had a couple of moments but for the most part the master has never been hugely tempted to be good well it depends I think that in I mean, certainly in the televised show, it's a little bit harder to make that case. I think that the doctor and the master have always had a similar sort of drive that they want to explore, that they want to see things. Um, And the master certainly does not agree with the doctor's idea of what makes someone good. But there have been times where they have sort of collaborated um, and they have worked together. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's yeah. there's been almost, you know, it seems like there's been almost a little bit of progress that you can see how that they could work together, how they could be allies in certain circumstances. Um, and you see that a little bit with John Sims' master, um, with the 10th doctor that he's still a little bit negotiating this idea of what does it mean to be the last of our civilization of our species? And do I actually change uh, my goals, my, you know, my outlook in order to pair up and work with the doctor? Um, There's a lot of uh, sort of ancillary material that explores this a lot more. I mean, you know, you've got the Schalke universe uh, existing as sort of its own thing, but it's a sort of interesting look at what the doctor and the master's relationship might be like um, if they are forced to work together under certain circumstances and how far the master might go to quote unquote be good. Um, And there's uh, some novels that also explore that idea a little bit more. I've mentioned this previously, but this is um, really reminding me of another um, Delgado Pertwee novel that they explore the idea of what is it that makes the master bad and are there circumstances under which he might actually be good, that he might actually change. Um, And the master is confronted with like his past and future regenerations and it's very much reminding me of this episode um so it's it's sort of there but not serious so a couple of thoughts um we've had plenty of examples of the doctor and the master working together uh and you know even even like at the end of time uh where they decide where they sort of team up against the time lords at the at the very end that sort of thing but i don't think we've seen a lot in the TV show of the master being tempted to do good as opposed to, you know, we have a common enemy kind of thing. But the other thought that I had was, why are we waiting until we have a female master to really explore whether the master can become good? This is something that I brought up in my very first review um, back in season eight, where this whole thing of we're finally having a woman as the master and now it's all I want to be your friend. I, you know, I want to be working with you. Um, And she basically builds up, you know, an entire army control over the earth like she is just about one everything that she wants and she cedes that power over to the doctor. That to me was a moment that felt very out of character for the master. Everything that drives the master is fear of lack of control. Like he is a control freak first and foremost. He does not want anyone to have power over him. Um, And it kind of felt a little bit odd to me. Um, And it also felt a little bit worse because it was 
they're they're building a very different type of relationship between the doctor and the master when the doctor is a woman. There's always been a bit of subtext between them. I'm a doctor master shipper in certain circumstances. Like, you know, there there's always been that, but they're very explicit about it in her first uh, two episodes with the doctor. It's kissing uh, constantly. It's very much active flirting. It's I want to be your friend uh, and I'm going to give you all of this power and control. Um, they are really sort of redefining the relationship there. Um, so it does it does strike me as a little bit weird that this is, you know, the the master that they're choosing to do it with, that they are sort of I don't know if this is explicit, but it does it does seem to me to be playing a little bit into, you know, it would be the first woman master who might want to reconsider their role in the universe. Uh, it's a little I don't know. If it, Michelle plays it very, very well. She carries a lot of violence and she carries a lot of criticism and she's, I'm not going to be your version of good because I am not going to be that sentimental person always. And I'm still going to use violence if it's necessary to get me the goal that I want. But there's definitely a leaning a lot more into this sort of emotional side of the master. There's a little bit more of the weepy side of it. And it does seem to be playing into some sort of essentialist tropes about women villains yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you. I will say, though, in that, you know, death scene of J- John Zim's first incarnation, yes. that mm-hmm. was exceedingly emotional. Yeah. There were a lot of tears there. The The love was absolutely at the front for that. And But to your other point, of course, the master always wanting to retain control mm-hmm. chooses sort of because, you know, rewriting the... Right. story later but yes. at the moment um is choosing to not regenerate because he wants to maintain that control and over himself and in their relationship together so i think i think that while it's a lot less it's not non-existent for sure in terms of it being more open and and upfront um the other thing i think about this is that you know to things both of you were talking about where, you know, sometimes enemies come together to fight or or solve a particular problem that is presented to them. In this case, it's the doctor creating a situation for Missy to solve in order to test her on her education to becoming good-ish or whatever the ultimate goal is there. And I think that's what makes it different in this case, where Alyssa's point is a little bit stronger in that it's this version of Missy that's being allowed to be tested in that way and ceding her power to the doctor in a way that I think hasn't before. So I can see like a little bit of both sides. Yeah. I mean, Lord knows we have a whole bunch of friends who see the sexual chemistry between the doctor and missy as confirmation of everything that they have ever read into pertween delgado there's also sort of a bit of why are we waiting until now to make it more explicit especially because it you know the relationship that was there was very much of you know a queer relationship people were reading into it a fair amount of queerness you know that this was going to be it was always a ship between two men and the only time it really becomes explicitly sexual 
in nature is when it's heterosexual, when it is a woman paired with a man. Now, we can talk for days and days and days about conceptions of gender and sexuality and time lord culture and how that's, you know, the various levels to which that's been established. We're talking about a TV show written primarily during those points um, by white men um, who are putting it on a very heteronormative TV environment that's going to be read by audiences within this certain way. Um, And it's not really interpreted by fan communities as quite the same queer relationship when you have uh, visibly presenting and identifying woman with uh, visibly presenting and identifying man. Like that's, you're simply erasing a part of that relationship. Yeah. So... Let's go a little bit into speculation about next time. <laughs> so we have scenes that looks like the doctor and the two masters kind of working together. And based on that up. trailer. Yeah, maybe. there's not a lot to go on there, but that I think that's by design for a yeah. series finale. But I, I would like to speculate that there will be a lot of amazing shots of peter capaldi's hair yes <laughs> and his eyes piercing yeah through the screen i i'm i'm really glad that of all the things rachel has done rachel has given us those amazing oh. shots of peter capaldi's hair and his face and just it's thank a you thank you so much little, in the best way possible it's exceedingly overwhelming so thank you rachel we're also going to get a lot of different cybermen in next time's episode we mm-hmm. saw quite a few different cybermen from various different eras did, all there. did we all i recalled was the most recent uh the most recent badge well, Mondasians and most recent batch, and I may also be bringing in some uh, set photos from in my head from when they were filming mm. um, outside. Uh, so maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit here. I'll go sit in my corner. Oh again. God, I've been spoiled. You've ruined <laughs> Doctor Who for me. I already ruined this episode for you when I reminded you that these Mondasians have gloves. Uh. Yeah, I mean, it could be that we're going to sort of be traveling through the history of the Cybermen in an, an effort to try and um, reverse the origin of them mm-hmm. kind of dilemma. As long as we're not back into Revenge of the Cybermen territory. For the love of God, no. No. Uh, we also don't see Bill in the next time trailer, which, which is anyone else also panicking? also by design. Yes, I'm yeah. sure. it's definitely by design, but like... Oh, what a concept, leaving a key information out of a trailer to, prefer, to preserve suspense. I did not need this much anxiety in my life, y'all. This is too much for me. And yeah. then we also have that pre-credits scene of the Doctor regenerating with this absolutely wild hair. Uh... But he doesn't seem to regenerating on any part of the ship. I didn't see in that like opening scene where they're breezing through all the different sections of what the ship looks like. I don't remember seeing a no, snowy. Was, no. That that looks very tenth planet to me. I don't think we're gonna see that until Christmas. Right. Right. Um, this is how Peter Capaldi cheats us when he says, "I already filmed my regeneration scene." Yeah, he did. It was the pre-credit scene of the eleventh episode, but he hasn't yeah. probably hasn't filmed the actual like regeneration from him into whoever's next. Mm. I would like to uh, do a little bit of a victory dance here because oh, I did yeah. speculate um, in a previous podcast episode that I thought that uh, John Sim's master would be showing up upset about. Missy potentially going good. Um, so I will... I, Do your victory dance. Uh, it. I'm very sad to be wrong about my thought about um, 
what was going on with the master and Missy. So, mm. which I know uh, um, at least one other person that we know uh, had the same theory as me that Missy came before John Sim right. in the master timeline. And I was very sad to mm. have that dashed. Right. Um, I know that there have been like uh, even um, the, some of the folks closely affiliated with the show have been looking at some of the criticism of this episode on Twitter and other social media and saying, well, oh, big surprise, Doctor Who fans uh, criticizing the episode because, based on what they think is going to be in the next episode. Um, I, I don't have a good idea of what's coming next. I don't have a whole lot of speculations, but the things that we were sort of criticizing this time around about what happened to Bill and things like that. It's just, it's not about predetermined impressions about what's coming. It's, it's about, like you said before, Rachel, it's about what we, what we saw this week in this week's episode. Um, I, I think that, I, I think that next week could possibly do a lot to redeem the things that we have concerns about, but it's an explanation, not an excuse. Yeah. It's also, the way I look at it. The, the way I also look at it is I have to sit with that for a week before I know what happened. Like, I have to sit with the image of Bill being horribly violated like that and thinking for another week, am I going to keep this queer character that I love or is this going to be another one to add to the ever-growing list of queer characters who get horribly, brutally killed off on television series? Like... That's not a good feeling to carry with you for a week. There's There can be dramatic tension in a show about what happens and horrible things can happen to people in television shows, but we have to think about what is the real world impact and who's carrying the majority of that violence and brutality. This episode, and I think it was re- very well done, uh, but I think it was also very trolly. You know, it starts out with Capaldi's regeneration. We get... Bill getting shot, and then we have immediately flashbacks leading up to it. This this episode is really, really strong at making us go, oh, shoot, we don't say shoot, and then flashing back, and while we're still coping with what we've just seen, sort of doing the mundane lead up to how we got there, and then back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Uh, this ep- It's meticulously structured that way to ratchet up tension between that and Rachel Talalay's direction. I mean, if you're into horror, especially body horror, Doctor Who, it has not been this horrific in a very, very long time. It's visceral. uh, As far as that's concerned, I think this is an extraordinarily strong episode just with a massive, a massive part of it that makes me feel deeply uncomfortable in a way that's not oh well doctor who's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable you know there's ways that a show should make you uncomfortable and this is you know i think that there's a lot of really good things that can be done with body horror and cybermen and things like that like there's there's a lot of good even happening in this episode before it gets up to the point that we see bill turned into a cyberman but it's what type of horror are you asking people to sit with and who carries that horror? Um, yeah. that's, that's the difference to me. 
and I think this is going to be a horrible comparison, I think, but um, it makes me think about Star Wars and with Luke losing his hand and getting the mechanized hand in replacement. And, you know, you have that scene where he's looking at it and he's thinking about, oh, my God, am I going to be turning into Darth Vader? Right. And so you get that same exact kind of horror at being turned into potentially being turned into a monster without that sense of violation, I think. And where that kind of works in a way that this one doesn't. Right. Because Bill's a victim in this Mm -hmm. episode. That Mm -hmm. that is her role. Uh, Clara was not a victim. She had agency at just about every point in her final episodes. And everything that happened to Clara in the Series 9 finale was horrifying. Like, there's visceral moments in all of those episodes around her death. But all the choices were hers. Yeah. And she has a Without being talked into anything. And it's her plot. It's her storyline. Like, everything that happened to Bill, this is not Bill and Bill's storyline, this is an ongoing part of the Doctor and the Master story. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, let's just see what happens next week in the ominously titled The Doctor Falls. Stay tuned, true believers. This week on The Incomparable Network, The Incomparable Book Club is back in session reviewing the Hugo and Nebula nominees on The Incomparable. You can find all this and more at theincomparable.com. So good to talk to both of you in person good again. To, good to see people Yay. and podcast. Face to face. All right, so we'll do this electronically next week for The Doctor Falls. You can find us at thisweekintimetravel.com or on Twitter at drwhothisweek, named after the character Doctor Who. You can find me on Twitter at numeral two minute time lord. Alyssa is on Twitter and Tumblr at Whovian Feminism. And Rachel is on the Twitters as well at R Miriam. You can find us on Facebook too. Rachel can also be heard on the podcast Hockey Feels at hockeyfeels.com. You can also support This Week in Time Travel by subscribing, sharing, and even becoming a member of the Incomparable Network at theincomparable.com slash members thanks for listening and we'll see you next week on this week in time travel bye bye